everyone. This is Nick Fletcher from the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and I'm pleased to introduce the Spine Subspecialty Day session podcast from the annual meeting of 2020. We have a great session tonight, and I think you'll enjoy listening to our moderators and six excellent authors. Our moderators for this session will be Ben Orlick from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Ben Roy from Columbia University in New York City, and Dan Cicado and Amy McIntosh, both from the Texas Scottish Rite Hospital for Children. We have six excellent papers, which I know that you will enjoy listening to, from a variety of authors, including Feroz Miyanji from Vancouver, Noel Larson from the Mayo Clinic, John Voorhees from Stanford, Scott Lumen from Washington University in St. Louis, Dave Skaggs from CHLA, and then one of Ben Roy's papers, as part of the Pediatric Spine Study Group. I want to thank all of the authors and moderators for taking time out of their busy schedule to help enhance our annual meeting content through the use of this podcast. As always, check out the monthly JPO podcast, as well as interview with the PDPod. The first study that we're going to be talking about today is from John Voorhees out of Seattle, and the title of the paper is Does Navigation Make Spinal Fusion for Adolescent Idiopathic Scoliosis Safer? insights from a national database. In this study, John and his team looked at a national database sample of 12,000 AIS cases from 2007 to 2015, comparing navigated versus non-navigated spinal fusions, and they found fewer 90-day complications using navigation, but no differences in revision surgery or neurologic complications. Navigation was associated with an average of $30,000 increase in total expenses. I'm now going to turn this over to Dan Cicado and Ben Orlick for a discussion of this paper. Thanks, Nick. It's uh, great to participate in this um, meeting. Uh, hopefully, everybody can hear me. So uh, this is an interesting paper on a very hot topic in the world of spine deformity treatment today, and that is how do you place screws? And uh, we're going to have a couple of papers actually on this session related to that. So the question is, can you place screws safely uh, or, or more safe with navigation versus other methods? Is it faster? Uh, what's the cost associated with it? So John uh, Voorhees has done a beautiful job of analyzing some of those parameters. So John, tell us uh, from these data what you currently do today with respect to navigation. How has this influenced your use of navigation, or at least your perspective of navigation, because essentially it showed it's more costly and it doesn't help in terms of reoperation rates and neurologic deficit. Uh, yeah, so uh, thanks also to, to Nick for setting all this up. Um, so with uh, my practice, um, it's like most people, I think largely dependent on how I trained, and I trained with people who did freehand screws and fluoroscopically guided screws, so that's what I do for AIS. Um, I do use navigation, though, for more complex uh, congenital cases and cases that are out of the ordinary and revision cases. So I think it's a useful tool to have. Um, but, uh, you know, really what I wanted to uh, try to get at here was how it uh, functioned in the AIS population, because I think everyone agrees that um, having navigation for a very challenging case um, can certainly increase your options for fixation. But do you really need it for the average AIS case? Yeah, so that's a, those, those are very interesting uh, topics. So the paper for yours just happened to be on the program at Posna, a, a study that we did here at our institution of uh, nearly 21,000 screws and really uh, freehand or fluoroscopically guided and really uh, very little complications. And really, we today do not use navigation for AIS. So it then begs the question, if you don't use it for AIS, can you be as facile with this technology and these platforms in the more challenging cases like what you mentioned, congenital revisions, et cetera? Tell us how uh, easy it is to adopt these techniques in those uh, types of cases when you're not doing it on the typical AIS case. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important point. Um, I think because I don't use it for routine AIS cases, I don't think I'm as slick with it um, with uh, as someone who uses it for every single case. Um, it definitely adds a lot of time uh, when I use it. Um, and if it was sort of part of the general workflow, it might make things easier. The, the question is, you know, is it worth the added uh, cost and investment um, associated with that um, for the marginal benefit it might provide to the, uh, the odd extra complicated case? Hi, John. It's uh, Ben Orlick. Yeah, uh, I think it's a very timely topic and 
and a lot of people are discussing what's the safest thing and, and what do people need for their healthcare systems and you know down the pipe will it become a necessity so i think it's good that you have a hybrid model and, and that maybe your approach is a, a reasonable one i guess one of my questions is because you have a hybrid model and some of your trainees are exposed to both um, the freehand method um, as well as the navigated method now as they're transitioning to practice are any of them selecting to go navigation for their routine ais cases um, I think that uh, so of the people who have come out of our, our fellowship program, most of them are doing AIS uh, freehand and fluoroscopically guided. Um, but uh, essentially, all of their institutions are interested in navigation um, and interested in the extra safety that it can provide. So I think it's certainly a, a hot topic, as you said. You know, I think a lot of us are waiting for sort of the next generation that we'll be able to seamlessly integrate into our case. Um, you know, a little bit easier without having to add so much, uh, so much time and logistical challenge. That's great. Well, um, uh, John, we appreciate your uh, comments and your paper. We're going to move on to the next paper, uh, which is uh, Ben Roy's paper. And so Ben will be having a one-person discussion with his co-moderator, Amy. Uh, Ben's paper is titled Bigger is Better, Larger thoracic height is associated with increased health-related quality of life at skeletal maturity. And in this, uh, this was a uh, database study looking at 469 patients who had reached skeletal maturity after EOS treatment, uh, and they correlated T1 to T12 height with EOS Q24 uh, scores, which is a health-related quality of life score. And they found that these scores were really static up until about 18 centimeters of height, but that after a thoracic height of 80% of normal uh, for an adult, which is 18 centimeters, was reached, that the HRQOL scores increased and continued to increase as thoracic height got proportionally larger. Very interesting paper. Uh, ben and Amy, take it away. Thanks, Nick. So this is Amy McIntosh, and I also appreciate the opportunity to be involved in this podcast. Um, so I had a few questions. I saw from your presentation that you define skeletal maturity as girls greater than 13 years, boys greater than 15 years, and no change in height. I was wondering, did you guys have any radiographic measures of maturity, or was it only based on those specific parameters? So uh, this is Ben Roy. Thanks uh, a lot, Amy, for, uh, for doing this. Um, we did look at uh, or we tried to look at other skeletal criteria, which we think are certainly more sensitive. But the problem is, especially in the database, there are a lot of um, patients that are missing data. So if we only relied on skeletal criteria, um, it would have, I think it would have really limited our, our data. Sanders scores are missing for the vast majority of patients. And then you can look at RISR scores. Certainly we could have looked at RISR 4 perhaps as a, as a criteria, but that's certainly not very sensitive. And, you know, certainly our group published uh, uh, the fact that there's a, a large percent, 25% uh, or so of uh, RISR scores uh, are actually misleading with regards to how much growth you have remaining. So we, we did just look at that. We felt that the uh, particularly looking at the fact that there was no growth uh, documented over a 12-month period was very uh, a pretty good indicator that they were done growing. And then I'm just going to recap for everybody who's listening. So basically, you guys showed that for patients that had a non-idiopathic diagnosis, if they reached 18 centimeters of thoracic height um, as measured from T1 to T12, that they had um, kind of, that was sort of the cutoff for improved um, health quality on the EOSQ. And for the idiopathic patients, that cutoff was 20 centimeters, correct? Yeah, that's that's correct. I think that the the syndromics were 19 centimeters, uh, the congenitals and neuromusculars were 18 centimeters, but they were all sort of in that in that range there. I was personally just wondering what percentage of the patients out of the 469 actually reached those cutoffs. Um, oh, that 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 achieved that. You know, interesting. I don't know that I actually have that data. Um, I mean, I'm sure we have it. I just don't. I don't think we. Uh, uh, presented it. Uh, I have uh, so that that's uh, 
that's a good point, but I, I don't I don't know offhand. Um, I do know that the the average height of the entire group um, was was over 20 centimeters. So it, it seems to me that certainly a majority of the patients were over that uh, that number. Um, but I don't have the exact numbers for you. I'm sorry. Well, that's that's good. I also looked at it in regards to um, the percentage of expected thoracic height based on um, wingspan. Correct. That, yeah, that's correct. So that's something which we had had put together, which has not previously been described. We sort of did a couple of translations to get from um, uh, arm span to a, a predicted thoracic height. There's we had to go from arm span to I think total height and then total height to thoracic height. Uh, and the, the formula is, uh, is located in the paper. It's it's something which is not very easy <laughs> to to do, but it's it is there. And um, you know the, the relationship and the correlation was not quite as strong with um, predicted height as it was with actual height, uh, but it really did hold through across uh, uh, all etiologies. And eighty percent was certainly the number that that came up. That that was the threshold above which we started to see increases in uh, EASA scores. And then the last question I had was, and I'm sure it kind of goes along with the skeletal maturity question. So we assume that with improved, um, you know, health-related quality of life measures, that that means they had, you know, better pulmonary function. So I'm assuming there was also, because of the retrospective nature of the study, no pulmonary function tests or six-minute walk tests to kind of correlate with these health-related quality of life scores. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, as you're aware, a lot of the database is missing. Uh, pulmonary function scores on so many of these patients, so there were not enough patients with pulmonary function data to actually do that. Um, also, the, I mean, there is data that does, you know, correlate thoracic height with pulmonary function, so there is a correlation there, um, and that would certainly be the natural expectation is that the children that have larger thoraxes would would have less impairment in pulmonary function, uh, and therefore, you know, hopefully, uh, improved quality of life. But but we certainly don't make that conclusion that you know that having a larger chest is going to make you breathe better. There's a lot of factors that go into that. Um, but I think one of the important take-home messages is that there, this is pretty consistent with what's been shown in some other studies as far as the, the, the actual thoracic height that seems to show better outcomes. We're looking at it from a slightly different slant. You know, we're looking at it with a, a, quality, a patient-related uh, quality of life outcomes, which has not really been done before. Um, so there is, it is important to get these kids bigger, and um, you know, which we've known, obviously, when you fuse children that are very small, they do poorly. But, um, but it's just another piece of information. And, and maybe also kind of will it help if we're making decisions? Do we continue to lighten this kid? Is it time to fuse? You can maybe look at the absolute thoracic height and, and this data. I'm not saying that would be the only factor, but it'd be one other piece of information you would have to try and make that decision. And then one last question. Was there, were you able to determine like the, the absolute change that was necessary? Because I'm just wondering if the patients who reached the, 18 centimeter versus 20 centimeter threshold, did they just start out with better thoracic height prior to surgical intervention? Meaning, yeah, meaning like the healthier kids did better. Well, right. So, so the um, certainly healthier kids in general do better. And we know that the idiopathics, which are a generally healthier group, did better, which is why they required a larger thoracic height. That, you know, it's another an inch bigger than the uh, you know, congenitals and, uh, and neuromusculars. They had to be an inch bigger before you started to see those increases. So, because we stratified by etiology, um, I think that we kind of can help the control for that to some degree. Right, but there's no absolute change from uh, pre to post that you can kind of hang your hat on. There, there is not. Um, you know, we did look at, you know, we tried to control for that aspect by looking at the percent of projected height. So that, that sort of tried to get at that, but, but no, we did not look at the at the change from uh, uh, from pre to post. It was just where they were at maturity, a single point. Great. Thank you, uh, Ben and Amy, for your discussion. We're going to continue to move on. Uh, the next paper is by Dave Skaggs, um, and this is a study that I know well. Um, this was a, a, a study of over 30,000 pedicle screws placed, um, and the title of the, the study is Power versus Manual Pedicle Tract Preparations, a Multi-Center Study of Early Adopters. Um, so uh, Dave and his group 
compared over 9,000 manually placed screws to over 22,000 uh, screws that were placed under a power insertion method using a flexible drill bit by seven pediatric spine surgeons. And they found a 0.02% incidence of screw malposition and a 0.073% incidence of screw revision for any neurologic injury using this technique. So I'm going to pass this back over to uh, Ben Orlick and Dan Sicato for a discussion. Thanks again, Nick. Uh, David, very nice study. So this is, again, a similarly uh, hot topic uh, that uh, we were talking about earlier. How do you place screws and how do you place them safely? And the added thing that you propose is this is a method that also saves you, the surgeon, uh, because it's uh, using the power of uh, uh, power and not using the power of you, the the physician, and and with repetitive tasks, we can have injury. So the first question that's going to come to mind to folks is, yes, I love the video. It looks great in the lumbar spine. You're bouncing off the cortex as you nicely showed in your uh, simulation and then in your case. The question is, on the concave side of the uh, of the uh, curve, when you have very tight pedicles, there is no cortex to bounce off. Everything is cortical. Tell us your experience there. Is there anything that you do differently for those screws when you're when you're drilling? Yes, there is. Thanks for bringing that up, Dan. So of course, the type D pedicles and the concavity of a tight curve are difficult, whether you're using a manual technique with the awl or whether you're using power. Um, so when you use power, this is the rare instance where you don't want to use a flexible drill bit because what we really want to do is skive along that pedicle, along the lateral portion of the pedicle, and then enter into the vertebral body. So when you do that with an awl, um, you feel the pedicle, feel the pedicle, feel the soft vertebral body, and then go right into it. You do the exact same thing with the drill, but in this case, you have to use a drill that's just a little bit stiffer, because if you use the flexible drill, it could skive right off the vertebral body. Um, Then what's nice is once you do get to the vertebral body, you don't have to push hard. You know, it's always scary when you're doing those pedicles with a stiff awl, because if you push through hard, that has caused neurological injury. Uh, when you're using the drill, you're never really pushing hard. You're just using the power, as you put it, to enter into the bone. So it feels safer uh, once you get a few of those under your belt. Great. A follow-up question in terms of the technique. I mean, it's very nicely demonstrated in your video. For the six surgeons, and I'm assuming those who are listed as authors are the six surgeons, tell us about the, um, they they obviously learned this, or or I'm assuming they learned this from you. Uh, Were these, uh, some of them may have been fellows, some of them were staff uh, that did not train with you. What's the ramp-up period? What's the uh, learning curve uh, that it takes to get to be facile with this? Well, you're right. Nick, if you don't mind, I'm going to want your comment on this. But Lindsay Andres only learned power during her fellowship. And from square one as an attending, she's only been using power. Uh, the old man in the group, Mike Vitale, he was out of his fellowship for 16 years before he adopted this technique. And he started to do it on cadavers, you know, like many of us learning courses. Uh, Nick, do you have any comments on this? Yeah, so um, I want to thank Dave for in- including me in the in the study, and I learned the technique from Dave and from Mike Vitale at a course that we were at, um, and I practiced on a sawbone um, for for a while, um, and so I incorporated it pretty early on uh, in the lumbar spine, and was instantly amazed at how much I uh, how much better a tactile feel I had when compared even to an all which I had done for you know. I think seven years because I started this in 2017. Um, I have subsequently uh, changed entirely to using this technique. Um, And I think that one of the things that Dave talked to me about early on, which I agree with, is we will have PGY2s and PGY3s placing pedicle screws right away with this technique. And there's a lot less concern, I think, on the surgeon's part that they don't know where the all is going. They don't know the pressure because, uh, as Dave says, as long as you can, as you, as long as you can read the numbers as the as the drill turns, then you know that they're going at the right pace, and you can actually watch the drill bit deflect if it hits the medial wall. So it's it's a very safe technique. There is some nuance to putting it in the uh, in the lanky D pedicle. So I agree with Dave on that. Yeah, Dan, you raised an interesting point. How do you learn? Um, I expect my PGY2 resident, the absolute first day he's ever doing an orthopedic case, or she, 
to put in a screw under power. And what they do is we'll sit in my office together and use saw bones and they'll practice for 20 minutes. And once I'm convinced they're facile, um, I would say 90% of the time that brand new resident could successfully put in a lumbar pedicle screw. Great. Yeah, I think po- there's no question I've been using power for many years. I've not used the drill to to place the initial um, you know, the initial track. And so this is a new concept that I think is certainly, uh, well, it's relatively new. This has been done for years in Europe, but, uh, this is this specific technique I think is, um, relatively new to North Americans, but, uh, certainly seems to be, uh, safe by your study. Do you do all the surgeons do freehand technique or is there a fluoroscopically guided, um, starting point? Uh, how many people use fluoroscopically guided in this, uh, in this group? Well, first off, there's no O-arms. So this study is in line with the previous two papers, yours and John's. And, you know, there's, you know, 30,000 screws without power with a very, very low rate of problems. I'm sorry, without a C, uh, O-arm or any type of 3D, there's no navigation. So I would say the average surgeon here is using a strict freehand technique with no imaging. Um, and then if it doesn't feel like it's going in easily, pulling in the fluoroscopy, uh, to check on where the pedicle is. And I would say I probably do that five or 10% of the time. Um, but most of the time you're able to feel it with the slow moving flexible drill bit. So you don't need to use fluoroscopy until the end of the case to check where the screws are. Um, I thought that was a great study. Uh, I started my practice actually using power, not for the pedicle screws, but uh, sorry, not for the place for cannulating the pedicle, but for putting in the screws. And then because of a funding issue, um, we lost the ability to have power and the previous power methods that we had available to us didn't have the finger, the sort of RPM control at a high torque amount to be able to place it. So I went back to the traditional method and I must find, I find now that I play a lot with lowering the table in order to relieve some strain off my shoulder. I think um, it's it's great because I'm constantly unsure of how much pressure, like everyone else is saying, the fellow and resident are placing, and I'm constantly telling them to wiggle, not push. And when I'm putting in the concave pedicles, I must say often when there's no pedicle, as opposed to pushing, I do resort to light taps with a mallet. So I'm actually really looking forward to you know trying this method on sawbones. I guess my question is, is everyone using this exact same type of flexible drill bit from the same company? Or are there multiple companies out there that are making this type of drill bit? And then the second question is, when you talk about a low RPM, um, do you have a particular number or range that you're speaking of? Uh, So in terms of manufacturing, for my first five years, I used Home Depot. Um, I couldn't get any spine company to make anything. Um, I think I should stay away from mentioning companies' names here, but right now I'm aware of only one company that makes a flexible drill bit. Um, But really, you could use a Home Depot drill bit. Uh, Two millimeters is a good starting point. Um, I think that your point is right on that when you use the uh, stiff lanky probe, you can't really tell how much pressure someone else is putting. And I find it very scary to have a resident or fellow use a stiff lanky probe. And when they use the drill bit, I know you're not going to press too hard in this little thin drill bit. So it does feel safe. Uh, the other thing, Ben, I'd like to share is I just use a standard trauma drill. You know, I use the same drill for putting in pedicle screws and for finding the pedicle or cannulating it, as you say, um, that we also use for plating a femur. Um, So I don't think that one needs any special drill for this. But the key is, as you pointed out, that the drill bit has to move slow enough so you could see the individual threads or you could see the individual numbers as you see how many centimeters deep you are. Because if you spin a drill bit full speed, you can go through hardened concrete. But if you spin it very, very slowly, you can feel it hit the cortical wall and then redirect it into the soft cancellous bone. Yeah, I agree. And um, we're, we're going to uh, move on to the next one. But I would say that uh, one of the things that got me initially was taking the drill and spinning it up against uh, the just the, the back part of a lamina. And if you run it at a very low RPM, you could sit there for 45 minutes if you do this in a cadaver, and it won't go a, even a millimeter into it. It just sits there and spins. It really deflects nicely off of cortical bone. 
Um, but th so thank you, Dave, um, and uh, and the moderators. We're going to move on to the next paper, which I, I really enjoy. This is a paper by Scott Lumen, and it's titled "Single Distraction Rod Constructs in Severe Early Onset Scoliosis: Indications and Outcomes." This is a, a very nice uh, study looking at two centers' experience in 25 patients with severe early onset scoliosis who were treated by a single distraction rod, typically for a very large curve or a very small patient. Their average curve size was 83 degrees, and the indication was inability to place two rods. Curve correction averaged 30 degrees, and the annual T1 to T12 height gain and the total T1 to S1 height gain were comparable to published values for dual rod constructs. So I'm going to turn this back over to Ben Roy and Amy McIntosh for a discussion. Um, so, Scott, I really enjoyed this paper. Um, you know, it was uh, something which has become almost taboo over the past uh, two decades. And people try very hard, I think, to avoid two-rod constructs. But looking at your results and uh, and reading your discussion, it, it really seems like maybe we've sold one-rod constructs short. Um, and, and maybe it's something which we should think about doing a little bit more often. As you stated, there's only about 2% of the study of the registries of uh, cases were single rod constructs over the last uh, ten years or so, whatever your your inclusion period was. But but one of the things which I really wanted to kind of hit on um, because I think to me it's the crux of the whole matter. So so you say the last line of your abstract is says when dual rods were not deemed feasible, that's when they used the single rods. Now how do you interpret that? What is what is it exactly? I mean we have like you know broad categories, how big they are, how big the curve is. But were you able to get any more detail as to which were the kids that really seemed to do well with this uh, intervention? Well, thanks for your question, Ben. It is, a, uh, just to start off, it has been something that uh, we all know that since the Beruzek, Barney, and George Thompson paper that really kind of tipped the scales uh, towards dual rods and away from unilateral rods. And it, it was my clinical experience that sometimes it's extremely difficult to put two rods in, especially on the convex side in, in patients that have a, maybe uh, a little bit more kyphosis than we typically see. Um, so I begrudgingly and maybe uh, felt it was a heretic started putting in some unilateral rods in uh, because uh, I really didn't think that a dual rod was a safe thing to do. Um, so the looking at this registry, particularly as you know, as you stated before, uh, looking at registries, it can be very difficult to tell uh, the purpose or the indication that some of the surgeons, um, you know, why did the, this particular surgeon use a single rod versus dual? I looked at all the radiographs in the series and tried to use my own scrutinizing eye to say, would this have been a case that I think that a dual rod could have gone into? And as I stated in the, in the manuscript, it's about 72% of the time, I, I think that it would have been very difficult to put a convex rod in. And these are kids that have, uh, as I mentioned, they can have a very large uh, coronal deformity. The rotation is also a big part of it. Uh, and a kyphosis throws that on top. And then, you know, these are children who the, the average age of the kid was about four years of age. So they have a very short distance between potential fixation points, whether you're going to go to the ribs or the spine proximally and either the spine distally or the pelvis. And so with the advent of the magnetically growing rods, you know, that, that actuator can be a real problem. As we all know, it's very stiff and straight. Um, so putting something like that on the convex side can be very hard. Um, it, it is something that is uh, takes a little bit of uh, uh, convincing yourself to do, and I did it, and I was almost, uh, like I said, ashamed to mention, you know, to, to, to say this out loud because you mentioned it is taboo, but it is effective technique for these kids who have that young kid that you just don't think you can, or maybe in your operating room and you just can't get it in. Um, I think that that's a good bailout uh, for these kids. Um, thank, thanks. What do you? What? The, which of these multiple factors? You know thoracic height, um, you know, in thickness, rotation, uh, you know, apical deviation. What do those, do you think really, is there something that drives it more than others? You know, part, part of the reason I ask this question is, you know, personal experience. And, you know, I, I was uh, revising a, a dual magic rod uh, in a kid, small kid that you could have argued maybe should have had a single rod. The second rod was hard pressed apart up against the apex of the convexity and eroded through the lamina. And when we passed it unrealized to anybody, to me certainly, and when I passed a new rod, it actually went into the, into the canal because there was no lamina there anymore. And that was a, you know, I've not heard of that happening before, but, but I think that's a real concern with, with when you're trying to 
you know, forced two rods in some of these cases. So was, were any of those factors you feel to be more important than others when in making this decision? Is it, is it just how the, you know, how thin they are, or is it the magnitude of the curve, the height of the thorax, or is it really just a big combination of everything? You know, I'm going to, it's a little bit of everything, but what I found if you were to look at one of those factors as the most contributory, I would say that it's going to be the kyphosis is the biggest problem. Uh, because once you get a kyphotic um, deformity, especially at the thoracolumbar junction, it is extremely difficult to try to put in a convex ride. So I, I would say that that would be the f most important factor uh, for determining if a single versus a dual rod. Um, I, I just want to ask one more question, and then I'd love to hear what Amy has to say too. But but one of the remarkable things about this study was just sort of the low complication rate. Uh, certainly, kids had a lot of surgeries; a lot of those were scheduled. Um, but it didn't seem to be that there was a single wound-related complication. If I read your paper correct, was that actually the case? Uh, that's what the study uh, um, databases showed. Is I was a little surprised too, and um, that because of the complexity of these kids. And if you look at Vitaly's, you know, the, the risk assessment for these kids, these 44% of them were congenitals, um, which are a little bit more problematic for their wounds. Uh, if you look at our experience as a specialty. Um, and I think it speaks to the fact that, you know, we're not trying to put in a rod uh, through a really area of tenuous skin um, that we're going to cause a pressure point that, you know, I think it's just a, the concave side is where all these rods went, which is a very easy side. It has more soft tissue, a larger envelope for us to pass it in. And frequently, is this rod going to be prominent um, uh, on that side versus the convex side? So I think it's a combination of that you have a, a, a more uh, generous soft tissue sleeve. Um, and because of the concave aspect of the curve, you're, you don't have that uh, rod being pressed against, as you mentioned, against the lamina of the ribs or against the skin dorsally. Okay, so I'm going to take a more nihilistic approach, and I looked at it as over a four-year period of time, we only gained 1.6 centimeters of uh, height, which is 30% of normal growth, and we got 30% cop correction, but our kyphosis worsened, and so my question is, do you think this group was better off with single rod? Uh, constructs versus maybe could you have just done a temporizing control method with uh, casting and bracing and then they would have never had metal placed in them in the first place? Well, I, I think you mean that uh, they, there are probably some situations within this study group uh, the study base uh, cohort that probably could have been that way. Um, these kids, uh, as I mentioned, a bunch of them, 44% of them were congenitals and very large curves in all of them. None of them were small curves. And you can, you know, it's, as I said before, we don't really know the indications by the surgeon um, when they pulled the trigger to put these in. Uh, but obviously the surgeon at some point felt that it was important enough and they felt that they couldn't control the deformity well enough. And for whatever reason that the non-surgical interventions in their hands were not successful. And, and again, I, I, I can't go any further with that. And again, since so many of these patients were congenital, these are the most difficult ones to get us to increase in T1 to T12 or T1 to S1 distance and are the ones that have the least flexibility. So it's really not surprising that this group has poor, or I say poor, but less than ideal uh, length increase with our distraction technology and um, it doesn't have as much cob correction. So that's pretty well expected. And, and I, I can't, it's really hard for me to go much farther than that you know, in, in this, but uh, because I just don't know the indications of the surgeons um, and what all the details of the clinical care that was delivered prior to the decision to go to surgery. And then my last question was, it looked like a lot of the patients got treated uh, with rib fixation, kind of for their proximal fixation. And um, do you think there could have been any um, more improvements if they had done spine to spine fixation instead of rib to spine? Well, I can tell you that um, the, the people who are involved in this study, uh, who were the surgeons, you know, believe that rib fixation is a reasonable fixation method. Um, and, uh, you know, if you look at 
the reason to do rib fixation in this age. Um, we don't sacrifice a spine fixation point. We don't create an iatrogenic fusion. Even if we say we're going to put two pedicle screws, let's say T2 and T3 on one side, there's an excellent chance that just placing pedicle screws, even without dissection uh, and bone grafting, will cause a spontaneous fusion in those. And that's a norm, usually more normal growth area for kids with, with these type deformities. Um, so I, I think that it's difficult to say. Um, you can certainly get more rigid fixation, but uh, you know, as far as you, as was quote, uh, as Ben commented earlier, there really wasn't much loss of fixation um, at all uh, as far as need for revision surgery. We just didn't see that very much in this. And that when you put four plus rib hooks uh, on, as been shown by other people, um, that the the uh, pullout rate's very very low. It's hard to say, Amy. I, I um, you know, a lot of the fixation points distally were into the spine with a pedicle screw. Um, so you know, it's it's hard to know. Um, it does lock up the spine a little bit more, and I'm wondering if there'll be more stress shielding if we put screw to screw fixation in the spine. And then lastly, like I asked Ben, do you know what the change in T1 to T12 height was during the time? Like, how much actual improvement there was? Was it the 6.3 centimeters? That was the actual change in T1 to T12 height? So the entire study period, the average uh, length increase uh, was essentially uh, about five, was essentially, let's see, 50, 57 millimeters. So it's about almost six centimeters that increased from pre-op to the final evaluation. And that was the full length of the spine, not the thoracic spine. That would be the T1 to S1, correct? Yeah, and the T1 to T12. And the T1 to T12 distance we increased uh, during the study uh, from pre-op to uh, would be about uh, 30, 30 millimeters of increased average. Great. Well, we're, we're going to need to uh, to continue to move on. Thank you, uh, Scott. I think that's a really interesting paper. Um, I'm going to now introduce Noel Larson, my co-fellow and good friend's paper. Uh, I'd like to also congratulate Noel on her paper last night, which was awarded uh, best paper for her work on the MIMO project. Uh, but this study that we're going to talk about tonight is titled Outcomes of Pregnancy and Operative and Non-Operative Adolescent Idiopathic Scoliosis Patients at Mean 30-Year Follow-Up. Uh, she's uh, gotten to be very adept at doing long-term follow-up on idiopathic scoliosis patients. And this is no exception. Here, Noel found a higher incidence of C-section in 60 adult mothers who uh, were treated with operative treatment, but also non-operative treatment of idiopathic scoliosis. And interestingly, overall, one-third of patients required a C-section compared to a state-weighted incidence of about 20%. So I'm going to turn this back over to Ben Orlick and Dan Cicado uh, for discussion. Uh, thanks, Nick, and um, thanks for having me on this and allowing me to be part of this uh, great discussion. I think it would be helpful for people that uh, see the papers to then look up the questions that may have uh, come afterwards. Um, I think this was a great study, Noel. Congratulations on it. I think it's really interesting that you the impetus for the study was this shared decision-making aid tool that you guys have and, and what a great way to, for patients to be part of um, causing questions uh, that uh, then turn into good studies like this. Um, I think it's um, really interesting looking at rates of C-section and how they've increased over the years and how they differ across cultures and across countries, and then trying to elicit the reasons for the C-sections becomes even more difficult, and uh, trying to figure out um, planned versus unplanned C-sections. I guess my main question for you was, did you get any sense of um, the proportion of planned versus unplanned C-sections, or is there any way to delve into the details of why these patients had a C-section um, you know, one question would be, is it because they couldn't have uh, epidural because of their prior fusion and the anesthesiologist said no to epidural that then pushed them to have a C-section or, or, or other reasons? Yes, it's an interesting question. And I think we've all been asked this usually by the child's mother, right? The child never asks about pregnancy, but the child's mother asks about pregnancy and, and what are the future outcomes. And I think most of us provide some kind of generally reassuring um, statement. Um, but um, the other series that has found this higher C-section rate was out of Poland. 
um, uh, Pavel Grabala has looked into this question. And um, basically, it's nearly impossible to figure out anything from the OB notes. Um, they're very vague. Um, and um, some of these are actually kind of old paper charts and then kind of our earlier computer system. I mean, potentially, if it had been more recent and people with Epic and the like, we could discern, you know, based on the number of preoperative visits. But um, Lauren um, Swanee, who's a Mayo medical student, did the majority of the chart review. And, and we sat down together and tried to go through these charts together. And it was very, very hard to tell. So um, we were hoping to look at pain scores and look at length of stay in the hospital and obstetric complications. And, and basically, the only thing we felt reliably um, we could pull from the charts was C-section versus no C-section, which I agree is, is relatively basic. But I think it does emphasize the need potentially for, for prospective study. And, and I think there are a few um, ongoing attempts to study this prospectively. Um, uh, my, my patients have not yet reached childbearing uh, years that I've treated personally, but, um, but I think that's on the back of my mind is should this be something we follow children for into adult? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, I, I always find that at some point in time during the post-operative follow-up, you know, closer to when they transition to adulthood and from when they're discharged from our hospital, the question comes about. And I, I, I did a quick literature search on it as well, and I was surprised at, at how little is reported on it. So I think this is a valuable addition to the literature, and, and it can at least help us, you know, um, counsel our patients into what they may expect. It would be really interesting to see if, similar to how we do a POSNA survey, um, whether there's any um, obstetrical group surveys out there that might um, be reporting on whether that would be a reason for them to recommend elective planned C-section or, or what other reasoning they might have. And you would sure hope not. I mean, I don't, I don't know that there is um, objective data that this is the way it has to be. And, and even with the epidural, it's unclear whether an epidural results in a higher or a lower C-section rate. Um, so I think, um, and then the funny thing we found that the Polish series did not find is that even the non-operative arm um, had a higher C-section rate, which is a little bit confusing because the Polish study found that the lower you fused into the lumbar spine, the higher the C-section rate, which was a really nice result. And our data was a little bit more, a little bit more messy. Um, but you can imagine it's harder to get an epidural with a very low lumbar fusion. And then, um, I mean, worst case scenario, you're fused to the pelvis. Um, that certainly might change the mechanics of child delivery. Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, I, I always find that at some point in time during the post-operative follow-up, you know, closer to when they transition to adulthood and from when they're discharged from our hospital, the question comes about. And I, I, I did a quick literature search on it as well, and I was surprised at, at how little is reported on it. So I think this is a valuable addition to the literature, and, and it can at least help us, you know, um, counsel our patients into what they may expect it would be really interesting to see if, similar to how we do a POSNA survey, um, whether there's any um, obstetrical group surveys out there that might um, be reporting on whether that would be a reason for them to recommend elective planned C-section or, or what other reasoning they might have. I say a general, very reassuring um, statement that um, uh, the rate of childbirth is the same with uh, people with scoliosis compared to without scoliosis. I say there's no data that there's greater risk to the mother or to the child and that your child's going to have a very nice, long, happy life um, and the scoliosis isn't going to affect this because I don't think the data is really quite there yet to, to scare people. Um, I think there's enough reasons based on mobility and adjacent segment disease to try and avoid fusing to L3 or L4 um, when you can. Um, but, um, and this definitely is in the back of my mind and I think an area we should pursue farther and, and figure out the truth. My take home from this was that as a woman on the panel is that OB-GYN physicians are just less comfortable in having women who have spine fusions deliver naturally. And it's, and it may be just a comfort level and they just say, we're going to do a planned C-section because I know that is controllable. And I think maybe they're just uncomfortable with this foreign idea of metal in the spine. What do you think about that? I think that's highly likely. And, and that's another reason to maybe try to partner with some of our OB-GYN colleagues 
um, and uh, see if we can um, shed some light on the issue and, and thereby um, improve care. Great, thank you, Noel. Um, we're gonna finish up tonight with, uh, with our last paper um, from the Great Northwest by Feroz Mianji. Uh, this is, a, uh, I'm surprised, the only study tonight on uh, VBT. This is titled Vertebral Body Tethering, Truly Motions uh, Preserving or Rather Motion Limiting. And here, Feroz looked at segmental intervertebral motion of 25 tethered patients, 21 who had thoracic tethers and four who had lumbar inclusion, and found preservation of intervertebral motion in uh, forward flexion as well as lateral bending both towards and, somewhat surprisingly, away from the tether. They also found increased intervertebral motion per level in the lumbar patients in forward flexion uh, compared to the thoracic tether. So I'm going to turn this over to Amy and to Ben Roy for their uh, uh, questions. Um, yeah, I think we actually had a, a handful of uh, tether talks in our section, but uh, I figured I, I, I wanted to pick one. And uh, after some discussion, we thought uh, this one would uh, be most appropriate. So. Um, really interesting, you know, uh, for us, this was, you know, obviously this is the, the reason that people are doing this case, which is, the, which is the kind of preserved motion. I was just curious, you know, at the outset, did you have any sense um, of what would, uh, you know, what you were going to find out? Did you, did you think, did, did you think that these were going to be results or did you expect something completely different? Uh, thanks for the question, Ben. Um, you know, uh, no, I didn't. Uh, the only thing that uh, I, I had some sense on is, you know, Peter Newton's basic science model, and it's the only real um, uh, literature that's out there um, to look at motion once uh, a tethered uh, is applied to the spine. So quite honestly, I wasn't sure what we were going to find or expect. Um, and I was a little bit surprised, and I think as uh, Nick outlined as well, that the lateral bending uh, away uh, from the tether as well as toward the tether was uh, was quite similar. There wasn't much difference there. Uh, and as you know, Peter showed something very different in his animal model, that tether, uh, trying to bend away from the tether, you had a bit of a little limited motion for the intuitive motion. So no, I, I had absolutely no clue what we were going to find, and these are the results that we saw. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly agree. I, I... But what Peter found was sort of intuitive as you're leaning away from that tether, you would think it would restrict motion and you found that motion was identical basically in, in each direction. Um, and did you guys have any thoughts or, or about why that might be the case? You know, what we, what we did do is we went back to look at whether there was any tether breakages or failures in this particular cohort. Um, now this cohort, uh, it was from one year to a little over three years. Um, and in, in these 25 patients of ours, we didn't have any tether breakages. So um, I don't know. Um, you know, my, my, my um, other sort of hypothesis is that they've had some growth modulation and whether that changes the tension that was initially applied on the tether uh, could be another um, consideration. But my first thought was maybe some of the tethers had, had actually uh, failed and they were broken at certain levels. But we, we checked that and that wasn't the case in this cohort. So just just kind of a, a related uh, question to that, because you did look at a, a range of um, time outcomes, meaning that these measurements were made at, you know, relatively soon after surgery to, to several years after surgery. And I know it wasn't a huge population, but did you see any trend or any thoughts that maybe there were some changes over time, like maybe they had, you know, more or less motion early versus later? Uh, no, we didn't. We didn't uh, look at the data that granular um, because the you know the the, the sort of the least follow-up or the minimum follow-up was one year, um, and then up to three years. So we didn't actually because these measurements you can appreciate are pretty uh, heavy to do at each level uh, at multiple time points. So we just looked at the most recent follow-up, uh, and it was just a cross-sectional study, so one moment in time. So we don't have enough numbers, I'd say, to compare those that were at one year versus those who were at two years, et cetera. The reason we just took one year is, you know, generally BBT patients get back to motion pretty quickly. Um, and so we just thought we'd, uh, we'd uh, look at patients that are coming back. Um, the other, ch obviously, challenge is consenting to patients because this has added uh, radiation uh, uh, to them uh, to try and get a, a question with this answer. Was, um, was you had any sort of, you know, control to compare to, like either, you know, pre-op data in either normal age-matched or scoliotic spines to kind of see what, you know, what happens in another situation? You know, how much motion is there normally versus in this setting of the tether? Yeah, another great question, Ben. Um, you know, we, we mentioned that as a limitation. We obviously have no 
uh, baseline data. Ideally, you'd want something pre-op, but again, the challenge was with getting that through our IRB was the increased radiation dose. Now, we do have pre-op Ben films. Uh, unfortunately, they're supine Ben films, and we thought about looking at that. We haven't looked at that just yet. Uh, but subsequently, what we've done is we, uh, through the HARM study group, Michelle has done a really nice uh, job looking at post-op motion in uh, fusion patients. And we are now in the process of comparing this cohort to her cohort. Of course, you know, there will be some heterogeneity because it'll be different populations, but we thought we'd look at uh, fusion versus VBT in, in two cohorts. Uh, the, I guess the strength of that comparison will be that the um, the way in which intravertebral motion is measured in this study is exactly the same as Michelle did in her previous work in fusion calculation. And then my question was in regards to radiation, did you perform all of these Ben films in the EOS machine so that you could minimize it for the patients or how were these radiographs performed? Yeah, another good question, uh, Amy. Unfortunately, um, you know, to get the maximal bending, uh, especially in forward bend, um, it's not feasible in the EOS. So we we tried a couple times, and we were wanting to do it in the EOS, but we uh, we went ahead and just did them as plain film. So unfortunately, the radiation is is considerably higher than doing the EOS. I do congratulate you on trying to get some functional outcomes in these tether patients, because I think that's something we all are very interested in as a group of deformity surgeons. So I really congratulate you on your paper. Great. Well, I think that's a wrap. I'd like to thank all of the moderators and the authors for their hard work on this, as well as for the work on their projects. I'd like to, of course, thank all of the listeners for their support of this new media and for their support of the annual meeting. And I wish everybody health and safety during these challenging times. Thank you and have a good evening. Mm -hmm.